Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Welcome to the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the new HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast, where I spend my time exploring New York City's history. And I'm joined by my co-host, Alicia Malone. Hi, Alicia. Hello there. Yes, I'm Alicia Malone. I'm one of the hosts on Turner Classic Movies and an enthusiast for anything old. Old movies, old books, old clothes and TV dramas <laughs> set in old times. And on this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about season one of The Gilded Age, episode two, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. And Tom, later in this episode, we'll be joined by two special guests. Yes, indeed. We'll soon be joined by Morgan Spector and Laurie Pitkiss. Morgan plays the stealthy and wildly successful George Russell, a man who can steal a scene by arching one eyebrow. Yes. And Lori worked as locations manager for the Gilded Age, so we'll be discussing where these scenes were shot. Does the Russell House really exist? You know, what about the Van Ryn House? And how about that scene in Central Park in episode two? When did they shoot that? Uh, oh yeah, it's not every day you get to shut down Bethesda Terrace and Fountain. Now, <laughs> last week, we took a closer look at what it meant to live in New York City in 1882 and the social constructs that made up New York's social hierarchy. This week, we plan to dive into some of the notable locations that were featured in this episode, because this week's episode took us all over town. The episode opens with some fashion. We see Marion Brooke getting fitted for yet another dress at Agnes's insistence. <laughs> Peggy has accompanied her and they talk about Marion's lawyer coming to town. So, Tom, during the 1880s in New York, I've been reading that the place for women to purchase clothes was Ladies Mile. Exactly, yes. Ladies Mile was a shopping district that was made up of enormous new shopping palaces, really. They, many called themselves emporiums, but today we might just call them department stores. <laughs> Most of these were located along 6th Avenue from about 14th Street to 23rd Street. Although some of the district's most upscale stores were actually over on 5th Avenue and somewhere on Broadway. Well, does this include some retail names that we might be familiar with today? Oh, absolutely. Like Macy's, for example, which actually opened at 14th Street and 6th Avenue. There was also Lord & Taylor, which opened in 1870. There are others that maybe some people haven't heard of, like B. Altman and Arnold Constable. And what made these department stores different from the stores that had existed before? 
Well, for one thing, their size. Some of these took up entire city blocks. Wow. Yeah, many were also constructed of cast iron, which allowed for some giant windows permitting fabulous window displays at the sidewalk level. But they also let in much more light than previous buildings, which made the interiors much more pleasant. And many of these structures actually still exist today along 6th Avenue. And the name Ladies Mile, I assume that's because the stores catered to women. Exactly, yep. And they also had many new innovations that were meant to put female shoppers at ease. There were set prices, no need to negotiate. The sales clerks, all men, were very respectful, often very handsome. Nice. But there were also lounges for ladies. There were restaurants and tea parlors and private fitting rooms. In a way, Ladies Mile really made it socially acceptable for ladies to go shopping unaccompanied by men. But this private fitting room we see in the episode seems very upscale. We don't know which store it's supposed to be. I'm going to assume it's something over on Fifth Avenue or on Broadway, perhaps Arnold Constable at 19th and Broadway. They called Constables the, quote, Palace of Trade. It's this massive building with a mansard roof. Still stands today at 19th and Broadway. This was a favorite of high society shoppers who were referred to at the time as the, quote, carriage trade. Was that because they arrived at the store in their own carriages? Exactly. Yep. They rolled right up in their own carriages. They did not take the elevated railroad, which was rattling over above 6th Avenue, a block away. You know, I also want to throw out that maybe the store that we see Marion getting fitted in wasn't all the way over on Ladies Mile at all, but maybe much closer to the Van Rhymes house because Bloomingdale's had also opened their East Side Bazaar on 3rd Avenue and 56th Street in the 1870s. So she could have been at Bloomies. And Agnes did say earlier that tomorrow I want you to visit my dressmaker. So that could have been anywhere. I know, right? I mean, come on, Agnes, we need an address. Yeah. Actually, we should have asked her on last week's podcast. Or Julian. Oh, yeah, he could have answered. He wrote it. <laughs> well, regardless, ladies did need a, a variety of dresses and gowns to attend all of their important social events like parties and balls and weddings and charitable events. And I was reading in my research about how the garment industry in New York grew at this time with more than 6,000 factories employing thousands of workers, including many young female immigrants. And it says here that one in every three residents made a living in the business. Yeah, exactly. And at the time of our show in 1882, most of the factories would have been still located downtown. In fact, Alicia, much of the work was actually being done inside tenement apartments, often by families sitting together sewing away at a sewing machine. But as the city would grow, the garment district then would move out of these tenement districts and up the island of Manhattan. So then you have a lot of immigrant workers working in the garment trade, uh, but we also mm -hmm. see them in domestic situations as domestic workers for wealthy families. Over at the Van Ryan house, you have someone like Mrs. Bauer, who we see a lot in this episode. Who I'm assuming by her name and by her accent was born in Germany. Peggy helps her get out of a rather sticky situation with a debt collector, and we learn that she has an unpaid gambling debt of about $50. This story is sort of woven throughout the episode, but 
ultimately, it's Aunt Ada who pays off the debt without ever letting her sister Agnes in on the secret. I'm glad she did. I was worried about Mrs. Bauer. Totally, me too. And already here in episode two, we're starting to see that Julian Fellows is introducing characters and stories downstairs the same way that he has upstairs. We're seeing new levels of complexity to all of these characters. That's definitely one of his strengths as a writer. I don't know about you, Tom, but because he makes the downstairs staff such fascinating characters, I often find myself watching them when they're upstairs. Absolutely. You know, there's a scene in this episode where Marion and Tom Rakes, the lawyer, are having this rather long, flirtatious goodbye at the front <laughs> yes. door. And and you see, I don't know if you notice, you see the footman, Jack, who's mm-hmm. sort of waiting, ready to hold the door for Tom Rakes. But then when he senses that they actually need some privacy, he sort of rather awkwardly kind of eases on by them, you know, <laughs> races downstairs. And I found myself in this scene watching him and wondering how long it was going to take before that whole juicy story was being discussed downstairs. And sure enough, we hear him reporting on the scene a few minutes later downstairs. Yeah, there's a lot of downstairs gossip in this episode. Uh, Also a lot of talk (laughs) over at the Russells because George Russell convinces Bertha to invite Mrs. Morris over for dinner so that he can talk to her husband, Mr. Patrick Morris, and now he is a city alderman, and George wants to talk to him about his proposed new railroad station. Also during this dinner, they talk about the upcoming charity bazaar. Where is the bazaar to be held? In the new armory on Park Avenue. How interesting. Mr. White worked on that, the man who built this house. Why didn't you choose Richard Morris Hunt? People expected us to, but I like Mr. White. He seems very unafraid. He is unafraid of decoration, certainly. (laughs) Did Morris Hunt build your house? He did, but for the Henry Lowells, so we avoided the pangs of childbirth. Still, it's harder to make it one's own, isn't it, when it wasn't built for you? Is the armory settled now? Mrs. Druid is sure it will be, and her husband is on the board. If anything goes wrong, you can use the ballroom here. We'll show you after dinner. You plan to entertain, then? When the time is right. I'm afraid New York can be quite challenging at first. Can it? We haven't found it so, have we, George? There is no challenge you are not equal to, my dear. Okay, Tom, this is what I love about period dramas, what I call polite slights, because everything that (laughs) Mrs. Morris and Mrs. Russell are saying to each other sounds very cordial. The tone is certainly polite, but the meaning is anything but. It's a kind of restrained ruthlessness. Bertha is basically throwing some serious shade in this scene. (laughs) Yes. And I love it. Um, Ann Morris, to her credit, she's also trying, but Bertha is definitely queen of shade at this table. (laughs) I mean, at one point, she asks the Morrises if Richard Morris Hunt is a relative. She says, it's such a common name. (laughs) I mean, that is like a Gilded Age diss, right? Basically, Bertha has managed to call the Morrises common to their faces. (laughs) And then meanwhile, there's a lot of talk here about the Charity Bazaar and the fact that it's going to be held in the 7th Regiment Armoury. Yes, the 7th Regiment was an infantry regiment that was active during the Civil War that had been given a block of land by the city at Park Avenue and East 66th Street for an armoury. So about five blocks and two avenues away from the Russell's house. It's a beautiful and massive Gothic Revival brick structure, still stands today, and it was constructed using private funds raised by fundraisers. 
And can we assume it's just been finished by the time of our story? Yes, indeed. Yeah, the structure, including the military drill hall, was completed in 1879. Although its fabulous interiors wouldn't be finished for another two years. They were completed in 1881, which is just the year before the story starts here. You said fabulous interiors, but this is a military building. Well, this is no typical military building. (laughs) It truly has stunning interiors. I mean, there's fine woodwork, there's sweeping staircases. Even the hallways are really showstoppers. And all of them were designed by the top interior design companies of the day. The veterans room and library, for example, was designed by Lewis Comfort Tiffany, an associated artist. I mean, check out the photos of this place. Or better yet, stop by next time you're in town. Because last time I was there, I walked in on a fashion shoot. Wow. I mean, it's that kind of a place. And But sticking to our storyline here, Stanford White did actually consult with Tiffany on this project. Yes, and we heard Bertha say that Stanford White was unafraid. And, you know, we talked a little bit mm-hmm. about Stanford White in our previous episode. Tom, I think you said that in 1879, Stanford White had become a partner in the architectural firm, I wrote this down, McKim, Mead and White. <laughs> and together they mm-hmm. ended up pushing American architecture towards a new classical style. Yeah, their business designing luxury housing really took off in the early 1880s, at the time of our story here, when they designed the Villard houses at Madison and 50th, for all people, a railroad millionaire named Henry Villard. Oh, like the Russells. Exactly. And it was a massive complex of six brownstone mansions designed in the Renaissance revival style. But Overall, I'd say that the firm's designs were, they were based on a kind of European classical ideal, right? They would end up designing many mansions along and around Fifth Avenue, and many of those would look like Italian palazzos. And then White would go on to work on Madison Square Garden and the Arch at Washington Square Park in 1891 and the New York Herald Building in 1892. And the list goes on and on. By the way, that was the second Madison Square Garden, which opened on Madison Square in 1890. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but let's just say that White is very closely linked with that structure. Yes, no spoilers here. (laughs) But Mrs. Morris, as we heard, used the architect Richard Morris Hunt for her house. So who was he? Uh, Richard Morris Hunt was about 25 years older than White. He'd been born in 1827. But he was trained in Paris at the École des Beaux-Arts, and in fact, he was the very first American to study there. And he would become one of the city's leading architects, designing public buildings. He would design in 1886 the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty, and of course, plenty of mansions, including the extravagant chateau-styled Vanderbilt Mansion at 52nd Street and 5th Avenue in 1882 that we briefly discussed last week. And I'm gathering from this conversation that it was very important for wealthy women to have an architect on hand. Well, as we see in this dinner exchange between the Russells and the Morrises, yeah, they were both dropping their architects' names 
in kind of like an effort to outclass the other one. And speaking of relationships, we also get a sense of how marriage was not always about love. Amongst the rich in 1882, it was also about money. You know, Agnes wants Marion to marry well to ensure her future, telling Ada, I don't wish her to marry for money, only to marry for security, support, and God-willing affection. And then Oscar Van Ryan has his sights set on Gladys Russell. And we know from the previous episode that he is involved with John Adams, but Tom being out in 1882 was not an option? No. No, being out wasn't even really a thing. Mm. They didn't even have our definition of gay or straight, of course, at the time. It would have simply been assumed of Oscar that he was going to marry. And what he did on the side, with whom he did it, that simply wouldn't be discussed. It probably wouldn't even be acknowledged. So there were no gay bars or gay hangouts? Uh, No, there were places where men could go and hang out with other men who were attracted to men. Hmm. Some of these places attracted bohemian crowds like Pfaff's on Broadway and Bleecker, which was, by the way, a favorite of Walt Whitman's. Other places like Parisis Hall on the Bowery was a bit, shall we say, looter. (laughs) Uh, And if anyone is interested in this topic, I highly recommend the book Gay New York by George Chauncey. But just because somebody frequented one of these places, they were most likely still expected to get married, especially somebody with Oscar's social standing. And in his situation, he needed to get married to somebody rich and somebody who would probably also turn a blind eye on his other activities, like Gladys. But isn't Oscar already wealthy? I mean, we hear that Agnes is going to leave her money to him. And by the way, I love Mm -hmm. the way that Agnes tells Ada, quite simply, I will outlive you. (laughs) I know. The look on Ada's face was priceless. Yes. I think that Oscar, you know, like so many practical members of old society at this time, sees that the city's social scene is getting richer by the day. It's changing. And if he wants to avoid getting left behind, unfortunately, he'd probably need more money. So yeah, he befriends Larry Russell, probably because he doesn't feel that he needs to shun his new neighbor and sees him as the city's future. So why shouldn't Larry's sister be Oscar's future too? And Oscar makes it clear to his mother that he thinks her view on the Russells is ridiculous. I give you prejudice in a nutshell. No, stop talking to yourself and ring the bell. I'm going up to change. I doubt it, Mama. I'd say you will come down again without having changed at all. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all know Agnes is not about to change. No. Also, Agnes is not a fan of Marion's lawyer Tom Rakes as being a prospect for Marion, but Agnes does insist on inviting Rakes over for tea while he's in town so that they're not indebted to him. And this is an idea that comes up several times during the episode, you know, being indebted or owing someone a favour. It's one of the reasons Mrs Morris doesn't want to use the Russell's ballroom for the bazaar. Yeah, there were so many rules and formalities So yes, likely they didn't want to be indebted to a, quote, new person, you know, who was trying to break into society. Not to mention that Mrs. Astor would never step foot in the Russell's ballroom. So the charity bazaar couldn't possibly be held there without her blessing. Aurora Fane, by the way, seems a bit torn by this, but Anne Morris doesn't seem to be budging. 
Meanwhile, it's obvious that Tom Rakes wants to court Marion when they meet at the Bethesda Fountain in Central Park, which was built in 1873. Rakes shows Marion the statue at the top of the fountain called Angel of the Waters. It's a bronze angel with outstretched wings. And this really was designed by Emma Stebbins, who, as Tom Rakes tells us, was the first female sculptor to receive a public commission in the city. Yes, Stebbins designed it in the late 1860s, finished it a few years later, and her angel here is celebrating the healing powers of water. The fountain, in fact, is a celebration of fresh water to the city, thanks to the opening of the Croton Aqueduct System in the 1840s, which finally provided New York with clean water. And this whole area that we see here, the fountain and the Bethesda Terrace, the upper part and the lower level, they were part, they were all part of the original winning plan for Central Park in the 1850s, uh, designed by landscape architects and designers Olmsted and Vox. I love this scene and all the folks strolling around, the kids sailing boats, a woman's Mm -hmm. painting there. And I really hope that we can speak about it later with Laurie Pitkus. Absolutely. By the way... Alicia, I do have to take issue with the way that Marion responds to Tom Rakes, knowing about the statue in the first place. She seems kind of like surprised that he'd actually know something. Did you notice this? She even said, phew, I was worried when she finds out that he just read it out of a book. I mean, come on. What's wrong with being a history nerd? Absolutely nothing, Tom. I am right there with you. Okay, let's go back to the Russells and that dinner party with Mr. and Mrs. Morris because while the ladies were looking at Bertha's ballroom, the men went to play billiards and chat about business, namely George's big plans. And you want to build a new station in the city. Which is where you come in. Even if I were able to persuade my fellow aldermen to pass the law, I don't quite see, well, not to put too fine a point on it. You mean what's in it for them? Hmm. Any shares you buy in the company now should go sky high when the bill is passed. But suppose it would be hard for some of us to raise the money. I imagine you have a margin account. Surely most of them do. You mean we should buy shares now on margin and then pass the law? I'm not telling you to do anything. And when it comes into law, The shares will go through the ceiling, so there's no risk in my buying on margin as I'll never have to raise the money to cover it. That's what you're saying. I repeat, I am not giving you any kind of instruction. This is why we're not meeting in your office. So Mm. who were the city aldermen, Tom, and why were they important? The board of aldermen, they were the city council of their day. And there would have been more than two dozen of them in the 1880s. And, you know, like city council, they voted on a wide range of important and, of course, lucrative city issues. George would definitely have needed their permission to construct a new railroad station. And in the previous episode, there's a suggestion that detectives could be used to dig up some dirt on the aldermen. So did those kinds of dirty dealings go on at this time? Oh, yeah, it got dirty. (laughs) You have to remember that the city was developing so quickly that if you had any kind of advanced knowledge of how or where it was going to grow, there were just endless opportunities for insider trading and kickbacks, too. That's what George was referring to in a very coded way. Yes. And in the 1870s, so a decade before this, the city's main political boss, a man named 
Boss Tweed of Tammany Hall, had been prosecuted and jailed for the outrageous way that his ring of criminals had actually extorted millions of dollars for city contracts for many, many years. So yeah, city officials had a long history of being criminals. But what we're seeing discussed here over the billiards is a combination of insider trading and buying on margins. Okay, you're going to have to explain that to me. (laughs) Well, George Russell, okay, is telling Patrick Morris that as soon as the news comes out that his railroad will get a new station, you know, in the center of the city, Mm. the railroad stock will shoot up or, as he said, go sky high. So he said, maybe you want to buy some shares, right? Mm. Eyebrows raised. (laughs) But Morris admits that he and the other aldermen didn't have any money to buy it, right? They don't have any money to buy it. So Mm. George suggests that maybe they do something called buying on margin, which means basically getting a loan from the stockbroker to buy the stock, and then you pay them back later. Okay, so then later the stock price will be higher because, as you said, mm-hmm. the news of the new station will be out. So the older mm-hmm. men can then cash in, basically. Exactly, and keep the profits. Oh, okay. Although George, of course, never explicitly told him to do anything, right, <laughs> no. which he states here. <laughs> Although later, when they're in the carriage together, Morris does tell George that all of the aldermen have started, you know, buying up their shares, and they haven't yet passed the law. Oh, this sounds shady. Yes, and I will also mention that the men who built vast fortunes, you know, on this kind of behavior, and really nearly any successful businessman who built a fortune using aggressive or sometimes ruthless tactics would be known as robber barons. And I think that George Russell is definitely a robber baron, and he definitely has a lot of Cornelius Vanderbilt in him here. Well, George is successful with Mr. Morris, but the charity's booking with the Armory does fall through. Mrs. Morris and Mrs. Fane decide to book the Fifth Avenue Hotel rather than use Mrs. Russell's ballroom for free. And this news makes Bertha throw her lovely breakfast tray across the room. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, we got a sneak peek at Mrs. Russell's ballroom and it was grand. Was it typical for houses at this time to have their own private ballrooms? Well, Bertha's was certainly in a class of its own, and the ballroom battles would heat up in the 1880s. But Caroline Astor's ballroom at her brownstone residence on 34th Street was really the most important in society. And because you couldn't really fit a huge ballroom into her home, they built a new ballroom wing just for the brownstone. (laughs) We'll get more into that story and other ballrooms in the city in later shows. Well, the Charity Bazaar gets set up in the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which we're told is not quite as grand as Mrs. Russell's ballroom. What is the history behind this hotel? Well, the Fifth Avenue Hotel opened back in the 1850s between 23rd and 24th Streets on Fifth Avenue, just across the street from Madison Square Park. It was the most luxurious and modern hotel of its day. And by the way, it was the first hotel equipped in the city with elevators. This was a huge hotel. It could accommodate up to 800 guests, and it really dominated the city's upscale hotel scene for years. But clearly, by the time our story takes place, this hotel had fallen out of fashion. 
Oh, yeah. And did you notice it just gets put down over and over in the show? Yeah. Um, you'd think that it was like a rundown dump, but <laughs> no, it was still a luxurious hotel in 1882. But of course, the city social scene would move north, it would fall out of fashion, and it would be demolished in 1908. By the way, today, the building that houses Italy stands on the former spot of the hotel. I've been there. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> Mr. Russell is not about to let this insult towards his wife slide by. And when the Russells arrive at the bazaar with Mrs. Russell quite literally peacocking in that wonderful peacock dress, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Russell pays each of the ladies running the stalls $100 to close and have all of their wares sent to him. And that's a stunt that makes Mrs. Astor pause and reconsider George Russell. Mama, we're back very early. I thought we were meeting at Mrs. Morris's bazaar. The bazaar is over, my dear. Closed and finished. What? I thought it was to last three days. So it was. But a man called George Russell decided otherwise. What was he like? Well, yesterday I would have said he was nobody. But today, I'm obliged to concede that he is someone to be reckoned with. And befriended? Oh, no. Not yet, at any rate. Yes, that's Carolyn Astor returning home early and discussing the new George Russell with her daughter, Carrie. And Caroline smirks, turns, and climbs the stairs under a giant hanging portrait of herself, which I think is a clever wink to a portrait of Caroline that would be done later in 1890 by the French artist Carolus Duran that she would later hang in her mansion uptown and under which she would sometimes receive her guests. But in any case, you get the sense that the queen here has spoken and will now ponder how she is going to deal with the Russells. It was quite an ending to episode two. And keep listening to the official Gilded Age podcast because up next, Tom and I will be speaking to Mr. Russell himself. Morgan Spector and Locations Manager, Laurie Pitkiss, join us on the official Gilded Age podcast, right after this. And you must be Mrs. Fane. Yes, Mr. Russell, I am Aurora Fane. So the pair of you decided my wife's ballroom was not good enough to raise money for your charity. Mr. Russell, there's no need... How much money do you hope to raise over the next three days? I suppose I'm hoping for 30 or even $40. Here's $100, on one condition. What? That everything on the stall is delivered to my house on Fifth Avenue within the hour. This is my card. Can you do it? Uh, yes, I suppose we can. It is why we're here, isn't it? I mean, that is the point. Mrs. Russell, can't you stop this? Why? The bazaar will be the most successful of the season. Madam, a hundred dollars. It won't help you, you know. This sort of stunt does not impress the people you want to win over. Mrs. Morris, this sort of stunt impresses everyone. And it definitely made an impression. That was George Russell shutting the charity bazaar down. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. I'm Alicia Malone, along with my co-host Tom Myers, and we're discussing episode two of the Gilded Age, which is titled Money Isn't Everything. And now we're happy to have with us the locations manager of the Gilded Age, Laurie Pitkus, and Mr. George Russell himself, Morgan Spector. Hello to you both. 
Hi, good afternoon. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great, thank you. We're so happy to have you both on the show. Morgan, what's it like to play George Russell? I mean, I've got to say, you seem to be having a lot of fun with the part. I'm very glad to hear you say that because I think George is having a lot of fun. I certainly have a lot of fun playing George. He is a, a man with an enormous amount of power. And I think in a lot of his life, or a lot of the life that we see of his, he holds that power in abeyance. I mean, he's he makes a lot of room for his wife and his children. And then there are certain moments where he applies the leverage that he has. And I think those are really fun to play. And I think Julian has sort of layered them in through the season in a smart way. But yeah, George is fun as hell. And our cast is sort of insane. It's like it's you couldn't ask for a better collection of actors to play with when you get to do a scene like that where you're suddenly, you know, it's the room full of like every insane Broadway diva of the 21st century are kind of like, yeah, this is a good time. And you get to shut it down. And I get to shut it down. <laughs> That's right. Shut it down. <laughs> I get to pull rank on like every Tony winner for the last 20 years. It's fantastic. And Tom and I were trying to speculate who George Russell might be based on. Did you look mm. at any real life figures in order to create the character like Cornelius Vanderbilt? Yeah, he's definitely one. And the other one that I was directed to look at was Jay Gould because he had such a sinister reputation. It seems like there's been some historical debate over time about whether he was actually more evil than the rest of these psychopaths or whether he happened to get that kind of press during his lifetime and he became a symbol of the era more than he was actually distinctly evil. But he's sort of a combination of Jay Gould and Cornelius Vanderbilt. I'm glad to hear you say that because I was wrecking my brain, you know, like, you also mentioned Vanderbilt, or or rather Bertha mentioned yeah, Vanderbilt right. in one scene. So it's like, oh, wait, so you're not Vanderbilt. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's a feint. And I think, you know, the Vanderbilts broke into society a little earlier, but they had a similar path, I think, as they tried to crack the world of old money. Lori, you've been a location manager for many TV shows and movies that were shot in New York. Uh, going back to the early 1990s, what were the challenges here when you had to find locations that recreated not just New York, but 19th century New York? Well, first of all, thank you for the reminder that I've been doing this for a couple of decades. <laughs> 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 just to start off that way. And I guess one funny anecdote I could, I could talk about is when I was called to take this job, I had just come off of another HBO job, The Undoing, which was a pretty grueling contemporary drama with many, many locations. And I remember the producer calling me for this and he told me about the time period. And I said, please just tell me that during season one, we don't have to burn a building down. Because I was convinced. <laughs> I heard about the plot line and the characters and I thought, oh no, everything burns down in that era. So that leads me to what's difficult about finding locations from pre- turn of the century, really, there's a very limited amount of mansions and corporate buildings that are still standing, restaurants, very few. So we've had to really make up some of it as we go along. Obviously, we've worked with a lot of visual effects. We were fortunate to have all the Gold Coast mansions, you know, in Nassau, we've got Vanderbilt Mansion up at Sleepy Hollow. We expanded our reach to move up to Troy, New York, to help us out with exteriors because, Filming exteriors in New York, even pre-COVID, but certainly during COVID, wasn't really tenable given the amount of restrictions we had placed on us by the city and state. So we had to really expand out and even look back to movies like Age of Innocence, 
and look back to some of the research that they did. Yeah, well, I was going to say that the maybe the pandemic helped you in some ways because it was a time when not many people were on the streets, but it sounds like it was an extra challenge that you had to face. Many of the event spaces, including the mansions in Newport, in Long Island and in Westchester, had to cancel weddings and events. And we were able to come in and not only shoot our locations, but really take over and have a base camp there where we could set up our tents and address the logistic challenges of shooting in some of these locations. And having to put that down in the city was, again, very, very difficult because at that time, the city even had restrictions on public gatherings. I think at one point when we came back during COVID, it was limited to 50 people or something like that. So it took a while for the city to catch up with what we had done in the movie industry. You know, all the unions came together and created this white paper and it took time for uh, the city to be able to review everything and decide that the work that we were doing would be safe, particularly outdoors. Oh, right. Okay. And, and you mentioned Troy, New York. Why did you end up using Troy as a location? Yeah, we ended up using the city of Troy because it provided blocks, I would say an eight by five block area of row houses that are still very much intact from a time period, 1850s and on. We were able to have the cooperation of that city. They gave us permission to close down the streets so that when the time came for us to think about how we could create exterior scenes, which is really one of the big challenges of doing period dramas is how do you open it up? And obviously we have gorgeous sets, but everyone can't eat and drink tea at all times. We want to see them out and about. And because Troy actually gave us permission to close down a number of streets, we were able to bring in horse and carriages. We were able to bring dirt into roadways. We ended up working with their public works people to even, uh, you know, address drainage issues that took place as a result of us covering the typical streets with dirt and our clay mixture so that we could bring our horse and carriages in. Morgan, for you, how did the locations and the sets help get you into character? How did they transport you into the Gilded Age? I think probably most of my work was on our set out of Gold Coast. All of our interiors are built, but they are incredible. And those spaces, I mean, I don't know if you you ever walk into Grand Central and you walk into that main hall, you feel taller. I mean, you breathe differently, you walk differently. I mean, there's just something about the way that those spaces invite your body to sort of expand. The set that they built for us at Gold Coast, it feels exactly like that. I mean, you have, when we were sitting in our sitting room, I mean, it's the size of, you know, the largest Manhattan apartment you've ever been in, but there will only be two or three people sitting in there. I mean, there's a grandeur to those spaces that definitely gives you a lot of cues about sort of who you are and how you feel in a space. Getting to go to those Newport mansions, I don't know if you've ever been to those, the Breakers or the Marble House or any of those spaces. When I walked into the our built set, I was just absolutely floored by the level of detail and the opulence and the size of these spaces. And then you walk into the breakers, which are the real thing, and you kind of can't believe it. It's almost absurd how the level of decoration in those interiors, it's like this mishmash of styles and the labor that is clearly went into those. I mean, that's the other thing that you're sort of keyed into is that in order to achieve this type of building, this type of architecture in that era, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands. I mean, I think in the case of the Breakers, again, if you've ever been there, that building was built, it is massive, mostly made of marble. And then the interior, there's not a, 
inch of it on the inside of that building that isn't decorated within an inch of its life in these sort of reliefs and carvings and sculpture. And it was put up in two years. I mean, you can't renovate an 800 square foot apartment in two years in, in contemporary New York. The amount of labor that went into these spaces, it couldn't a sharper illustration of the sort of gap between the haves and have nots than that, I don't think. And the breakers was put up again by the Vanderbilts, bringing us back to the Vanderbilts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the Vanderbilts. Yeah, I'm sure also, Morgan, that you had to do a lot of research into how these big houses were run because it was almost like a business. But again, there was a huge gap between the haves and have-nots. I mean, that was something that I think I sort of struggled with, the degree to which you are meant to ignore the servants. I mean, there's not a nod, there's not an acknowledgement, there's not a, oh, thank you very much. It's just, they do what they are meant to do, and you would only notice them if they mess up. If they deviate from the acceptable pattern of interaction, then you would notice them. I mean, it's, it's just very bizarre because, of course, you're standing around on set just shooting the shit with your friends and then you have to go into the scene and basically, yeah. like, they're now furniture. But, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I think what's interesting, though, working with the Newport Preservation Society, in particular, there's one gentleman who was our contact and helped us organize all the shooting at the different mansions that we filmed in. He actually worked in service at one of the houses owned by the Preservation Society. So I thought it was kind of interesting that the people that are still supporting these mansions come from a familial place of love and actually have connections, literal connections to some of the buildings. Hmm. Interesting. Lori, when you were shooting, you said you were shooting in some of these mansions, mm -hmm. but you were also building these interiors. So, for example, when George and Bertha are at the base of the staircase in their new mansion, is that a set? Is that shot on location someplace? Where is that? That is actually a set built on our soundstage at Gold Coast Studios in Long Island. But yeah, I don't want to give away too much for the people that love to follow around and try to put all the puzzle pieces together. But yes, there are many, It's you know, the locations are a real amalgam of some of the Newport mansions cobbled together with some mansions, you know, that were filmed, one in Yonkers in particular. You know, we were up in um, Terrytown at Lyndhurst. And I don't think there's one whole house that was utilized. Well, maybe there was. Actually, it was your episode. The Morris House was a house that we filmed in Rhode Island, in Warwick, Rhode Island, which is a privately owned house called Clouds Hill. We actually did the meeting for the bazaar at that house also. In general, Laurie, is it harder to change an existing location or to recreate something from scratch? I think it's easier to alter an existing location, especially when you're looking at the 1880s. You know, you start with the floor. <laughs> you know, we look at many locations and think, oh, we can't come in here and tear up all the carpeting. Window treatments, you start looking at the molding. The light fixtures for us were a big issue everywhere because we were pre-electricity. Yeah, that's something I didn't even think of. And it's interesting, Laurie, because your job is one that viewers shouldn't really notice unless they're looking for these locations like we are. But for you, what is the favorite part of your job? Is it the, the thrill of finding a location? Is it seeing what these set dresses do with that location or seeing it finally up there on the screen? Honestly, for me, the real joy comes from being involved in the collaborative process from the very beginning. Oftentimes, I'm brought in on a show before the scripts are completely written, sometimes even before a production designer is on. You know, sometimes a studio will have an idea about a show and come to me and say, well, do you think this is shootable in this city? And you become really the person who's helping to build the template for what the whole show will be about. 
And I think any good location manager is a creative person and a person who's deeply aware of the logistics that go into shooting every day. But I would say I err on the side of wanting to support the creative endeavor. I don't think the producers want to hear that. (laughs) But I think putting together a good show, I, I would never hold back on a fantastic location. You know, if I knew something existed that would really bring the show together and look fantastic. So yes, finally seeing it on the screen is wonderful. But the collaborative process of being a department head who deals uniquely with every single department on the show is a rewarding experience because you you get to know everybody, you interface with everybody. And when it all goes well, you're supporting the whole crew. Lori, I know that you just said that you don't want to like ruin the game for people who are trying to pull it together. But please, I have been losing sleep over this. The exterior of the Russell house. Okay. I don't want to belabor the point, but is that a set? It can't possibly be a set. It's a fantastic thing that's very unique to this show. And I've been doing this, as you've mentioned, for many years. I've never seen it done in New York, but we were able to build a back lot in Nassau County, Long Island. So prior to COVID, I think we broke ground in December of, was it 2019? It's hard for me to keep the dates together. But we we literally, we found a barren seven acre piece of land that was adjacent to a building called the Museum of American Armor. I had known about it because we used it as a holding area on an episode of Orange is the New Black. But when we were talking about where we would build a back lot, I remembered this, I kept calling it the dirt pile. And I went to the gentleman who's the director of the museum. And I said, you know, do you think we could build a back lot on your dirt pile? And it turns out that he's a uh, well-connected public relations person who used to work closely with Alphonse D'Amato. And obviously running the Museum of American Armor has its own political attachments to it. And he was really game and excited about doing this. You know, he's very aware that production is growing everywhere. And he thought that it would be interesting for Nassau County to get in on some of that action. And with his help and with the help and support of the county executive, we were able to establish a uh, fairly long-term relationship with the county. Mm. So we'll have the backlot potentially for five years, but that's exactly where we built. We had to bulldoze the whole thing and place drainage in. It's, you know, it was like building a development, a neighborhood development, (laughs) even the substrate on the ground, you know, again, starting Mm -hmm. from the floor up, we didn't have cobblestones then it was dirt and clay. And we, we toiled over the color that this should be. And we had the contractors (laughs) bringing buckets of sand into the office so that we could analyze whether it should be more gray or more Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I know Morgan, I see you shaking your head. (laughs) But it is, I mean, it is absolutely flabbergasting. Like, Laurie, I I mean, you clearly have worked on a gajillion things, but like the scale of this show plus COVID, I mean, is it the biggest thing you ever worked on? Or, I mean, I don't know, where does it fit in your... Yeah, it absolutely does in the broadest sense. Although I did do the Bourne Ultimatum a number of years ago, and I didn't know a lot about car chases. And so I've learned a lot of (laughs) I was going to say I was ready for a carriage to T-bone another one. I I would understand what that meant. People were run over by carriages all the time. All the time, right? All the time. (laughs) But then there are some things you obviously didn't build. I'm thinking Bethesda Terrace and Fountain. I mean, uh, unless, prove me wrong, you didn't build that. That That was the actual fountain. 
That's terrific. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we did because of COVID again and because of the restrictions on group gatherings, there was a time when we thought, oh no, how are we going to do Bethesda Fountain with VFX looking at places like Millneck Manor in Long Island, which, which happens to be a big mansion with a circular drive with pavers. And at a certain wow. point we thought, oh my God, are we going to have to create a complete VFX atmosphere and plop the fountain in and create the carriages and people walking around it? But Our timing did work well for us there, and I believe it was right around March or April, we approached the Park Conservancy and Stan Steen, their media relations person, you know, at first was a little concerned, wasn't sure that we'd be able to get our numbers past the Conservancy. And right around that time, I believe the numbers in New York loosened up and may have gone as high as gatherings of 150 to 200 people. I think we had to keep under 150. But again, our crew itself is 100 people. So to shoot at Bethesda Fountain with only 50 actors really doesn't work because it would mm-hmm. it would look so underpopulated. We then thought we'll, we'll try to weed our crew down to the most essential 40 or 50 people and then bring 100 background in. So we did kind of take that approach. But really what made it work for us was the Central Park Conservancy allowed us to do something that no other production I think has ever been able to do and probably won't ever be able to do, which is we erected a 13,000 square foot tent across the way from Bethesda Fountain so that we could dress our 100 background because the create, you know, the most difficult and time consuming thing. And Morgan, I'd love to hear how you address this in the morning is just how long it takes to get dressed, <laughs> you know? So our crew is arriving, our hair and makeup people are arriving at 345 in the morning, actors arriving shortly thereafter. And, you know, if you've ever seen a hundred people get into big bustle dresses and, and have curls and, and very specific makeup put on, we had probably 60 makeup stations inside this giant tent. Without that, though, we never would have been able to shoot at that practical location without the support space being right nearby. You know, we would not have been able to shuttle those people dressed from outside, even if it was the Plaza Hotel. It would have taken hours to get everybody from the hotel to us to set. Wow. Well, Morgan, I'd like to turn to a scene from episode one, where we see that George Russell is a rather ruthless businessman. He's meeting with the owner of another railroad, George Thornburn, who has not accepted George's buyout offer. And so George is going to do something rather cutthroat. Let's take a listen. You refused my bid, and now I will build a new line alongside yours, which would wipe me out. I'm afraid that'll be a consequence, yes, but it is not my principal intention. Oh, isn't it? Well, thank the Lord. Is there anything else? Because I have another appointment. So what you are saying is you would rather waste a fortune than pay an honest price for a line already operating? But I do not see it as a waste. Once people learn that my second offer is invariably my last, they won't, as a rule, refuse me. Over the years, I expect to save a lot more money than I am spending now. You bastard. So, Morgan, how do you strike that balance in George's character? How do you uh, allow him to be cruel, but also the audience likes him? And sees that he is a loving husband to Bertha. I mean, for one thing, in business terms, the way George, the way I sort of think about it is business is competition and it's all about the survival of your firm and undercutting any other firm that exists. I mean, I think there's a reason that capitalism tends toward monopoly, right? I mean, every firm is essentially trying to destroy every other firm and become the preeminent in any particular sector of the market. In a certain way, that's just 
you know, and any any real like human feeling or scruple is just an obstacle to doing that ultimately. But I think also, I think most of us feel like there's our family, there are children, there are other people to whom we are most emotionally and morally obligated. And then there's like everybody else in the world. And, you know, you do what you have to do to get the best life for your family. And do you see the Russells as being sort of a necessary part of New York society and like pushing New York towards a future? I guess it's a sort of question in my mind whether they made the society culturally richer. I mean, obviously there's a competition around who could get into which opera house. And as a result, more opera houses were built, things like that. So they expanded the cultural offerings of the city simply by virtue of this sort of clash between the two social groups. So that's something. They definitely left behind a legacy of museums and at least the buildings for the cultural institutions that wouldn't have otherwise existed. Absolutely. Alicia and I, we were also saying earlier that George and Bertha seem to be the only married couple on the show who are actually affectionate toward each other. I mean, you really do seem to like each other. What do you like about their relationship? To me, it feels really grounded in the period as much as it doesn't, it also, it also looks something like a contemporary romantic relationship. I mean, their love for one another is to some extent grounded in their mutual respect for each other's ambition. It's in different areas, but they both have this sort of will to power, I think, that helps them understand one another and binds them together as kind of um, comrades in arms, even when sometimes they're struggling to get along. Working with Carrie and building that relationship is easily my favorite part of the show because I think good marriages are actually really interesting. I think we often don't see them. I think we get interested in the storyline of one one half of a marriage or the other, and then the other side becomes almost like an impediment to our intimacy with one or the other characters. But I think seeing a marriage that does allow both partners to flourish, I think is actually a kind of tricky thing to write and it's exciting to be uh, to get to play it. Yeah, usually marriage is just the happily ever after that you never see. Right, exactly. It's the end of it's the end of the story. Yeah, right. I actually was going to back up and just say um to Morgan what I loved so much about his relationship with carry on screen is that it's such a counterpoint to the cattiness and competitiveness to the women, particularly in the bizarre scene where it sort of flies in the face of, of everything they want to believe, you know, and the fact that Bertha and George are so unified, I think, is what helps really sell that scene even more. Thanks. Obviously, you know, you didn't have to wear all the corsets and dresses that Carrie Coon had to wear, but (laughs) what was it like to wear George's suits and costumes? Again, did that help you get into the character? Absolutely. The playing dress up part of being an actor is definitely one of the most elementally fun parts of it. My sense was just that these clothes were built by people who really knew a kind of form of artisanship that maybe just isn't common anymore, that that people can't really do anymore. So when you put on these clothes, you feel like you're, I don't know, you're almost like the clothes are better than you are. The clothes are have more dignity and more honor than you do as a human being. So they sort of endow you with a little extra power. Initially, I thought they were going to be really uncomfortable and really difficult to put on. And the first time I got into my costume, I was like, I'm going to actually need a valet. Like, I can't do this by myself. This is insane. But eventually, you know, you learn. I learned how to use my button hook and got, got to be fairly uh, quick and independent <laughs> with it. But Well, you certainly see why. 
people in George's position would have had a whole staff, right? And would have had helpers to get in and out of those. There's an undignified struggle to button your boots and your vest and all this thing. So yes, when you know that your character would never want to do anything like that, that any kind of physical labor like that would have really been considered beneath him, you realize, yes, you must have staff. Morgan, I'd love to just ask you one last question about being on set, on that set, with all of that food. Did you ever actually get to eat any of that food? You mean that that long table at our sad little party? This sad, very sad party, very sad opening night party that nobody came to. But then in, I guess even in this episode too, there are dinner scenes. You're always sitting there eating what looks like a fabulous meal. On a practical level, the dinners are a little bit of a struggle for me because I am left-handed and it was a time when you were not allowed to be left-handed. So I have to reverse everything. It's a slightly more Baroque way of eating anyway. And so I'm sort of learning that, but doing it with my opposite hand. The first dinner scene we had, we were just eating soup. And so the whole time I'm just thinking, don't spill the soup, you dumb baby. You know what I mean? That's like my only objective in the scene. So when I watch it now, it's just like, okay, that's what's going on. Uh, but no, we were very well fed by the props department. But no, in terms of those like incredibly opulent spreads, we didn't, mm. we didn't get to eat. Mm. Well, and I'm going to go back and have to watch that scene. I want to check out your face during the soup scene. <laughs> Lori Pitkiss and Morgan Spector, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great. Such a pleasure. Tom, gosh, that was such an interesting interview. I know we had a million questions for Lori, but I cannot believe they built an entire backlot for the show. Oh, so amazing and so great to get those insights. And Alicia, to know that we're only on episode two. We have so many more locations to come. So please join us again for another episode of the Gilded Age podcast, because next week we have more interviews with the cast and crew. And we'll be looking at the American dream during the Gilded Age and the types of industries that were booming at this time. So be sure to watch new episodes of the Gilded Age Mondays on HBO and HBO Max before tuning in to the next podcast. See you soon. Bye. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.